Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind, in your heart. Good morning, everyone. This is Book Talk with Fran Lewis, brought to you by MJ Network. MJ, in memory of my sister, Marcia Joyce, and this is going to be so amazing. Boyd and Elizabeth Morrison are here to talk about The Last True Templar. And I'm just going to read a little blurb because I don't want to give it away. The thrilling new historical adventure from New York Times bestselling authors, Boyd Morrison and expert medievalist Beth Morrison, Fox and Willow will find themselves on a dangerous quest for the treasure of the Templar Knights. And I'm not going to tell you any more. You've got to read this. So good morning and welcome to MJ Network. Good morning. So glad to be here. Me too. So that prologue really got me, and I reread it this morning just to make sure I got it right. Tell us about the prologue and how it sets the tone for the rest of the history to come. Well, we really wanted to center this book around the Knights Templar. There's many, many books out there uh, that involve Templars or the Templar treasure, but the difference with our book is we actually get to feature Knights Templar themselves. So what better way to start out a book than by the most dramatic scene ever associated with the Knights Templar, which is when they were disbanded and the head of the Templars was actually burned at the stake in an island in the middle of Paris. That was really amazing. But you, the way you wrote right, I could actually picture it. I could smell the smoke, too. What could I tell you? Good. So, you know, we, want, we want, definitely want people to be, be able to imagine what it might have been like in this scenario because it was such an important event in uh, mm. French history at that time. Well, that's what makes your books different than everybody else because the, his- the history is there, the research is there. And I've read a whole lot of books and I've actually looked into some of them and they go like, they got it wrong. <laughs> so Lambert mm-hmm. knew his fate and what he was guarding and who, of course, he was one like him. And why the hate between them, and why did he hide? So it starts with the story of um, a, a Knight Templar, the last true mm. Templar, Knight uh, Ramberte, and uh, you find out why um, he, this, this uh, young man named uh, Ricardo Carosi is mm-hmm. is after. It's because he has hidden away the fabled treasure of the Knights Templar. Um, the Knights Templar were the richest organization in the world at that time, and they were persecuted by the French king because the king owed so much money to them that mm. he decided instead of paying back the Knights Templar, he would just destroy them instead, and then he would never have to pay back the money. And so to keep the the riches hidden from the French king, um, it is thought that the Knights Templar actually hid the majority of their treasure from him 
so the team wouldn't be able to find it, but nobody has ever found that treasure. And so we theorized that this um, Templar Knight was in charge of finding a place to hide the treasure somewhere in the world, and we um, came up with the idea of that that they're trying to find it um, for various reasons that you'll find out in the story. It was interesting, that's for sure. So I really wish more people would read books like this because they don't, they don't appreciate the history. And they go, like, why am I we reading a book that... We wish more people would read them, too. Yeah, that's just true. We need more people to read, period, really. So Luciana Corsi, she's brave, so how did they? How did the how did they the ambush and why did they allow you know what happened and how did she get ambushed? Yeah. So one of the things that was interesting about this book, um, as Boyd was talking about, we really interwove a lot of true historical facts into our story, mm. which really complicated the writing process for us. But I think it makes it much more interesting for the reader because everything yeah. that we write in the book could really have happen um, because we didn't change any historical facts. We, in fact, came up with some reasons for things that remain inexplicable to this day. So that was kind of cool to be able to do all of that. But, of course, we wanted our main characters, Fox and Willa, to be the main characters of the story who get sort of wrapped up in this story with um, one of the main secondary characters, who's Luciana Carosi. And the Mm. way they get wrapped up on it is that they are just sort of in a town and all of a sudden Mm. they see this fight break out in front of them and they see that this woman is endangered. Mm. And because of the kind of people that Fox and Willa are, they jump right into the fray and save her, but then realize, of course, that it's not just, you know, a random attack and they get wrapped up in the entire um, story and... We have personal reasons that they also then end up wanting to help her find the Templar treasure. So it was a really fun book to write, but very complicated. It is. And, I, you know, actually that's what made it more interesting because it wasn't one of those books that, oh, yeah, okay, right, whatever. Um, so tell this, this this was really interesting. I mean, you must have done research or something. His bank, Ricardo and his banking system, interesting. And tell us about banking and the church. This was like, are you kidding? Yeah, it, it, the um, so the book takes place in central Italy, and um, now Carosi, who was only a teenager in the prologue of the book, is now in his fifties, mm. and um. He has become one of the most powerful bankers in Florence. This was just at the start of the rise of um, the growth of banking in Florence. And and as you know, in the 15th century, just just, uh, 60 or 70 years later, or not even that far, the the Medicis, the same Medicis of Florence, rose and became the most powerful bankers in Europe. And so our our character Kurosi is is kind of at the forefront of the banking mm. industry, which was just starting in Europe. And they he actually learned of many of the techniques of banking from the Knights Templar. But the Knights Templar got so rich because mm. they were protecting um, pilgrims who traveled all the way around Europe 
to the Holy Land to to do their pilgrimages. But what the Templars were finding out is that many of them were being robbed along their journey because they had to carry so much money for their travel. Mm. And so the Templars instituted the really the first international banking system where they say a traveler leaving from Paris would um, deposit funds in the Templar treasury and the Templars would give them a coded letter of credit to carry with them instead of all this gold and, and jewels. And when they reached the Holy Land in Jerusalem, they would give this letter of credit to the Knights Templar there, and they would get their money back. And mm. the Templars would make their money by either pilgrims who never arrived on their journey, so they would just keep the funds that were deposited, or they got many, many donations from people who were thankful for their services. And so they accumulated huge wealth um, that was that was great, far greater than even the the Catholic Church at that time, and so they, that's why they were such a powerful organization. And so the the Florentine bankers learned from this, mm. and so we 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 came up with a character to kind of show how that could have happened. It would be wonderful, really amazing if that could happen today too. That's even scarier. I often wonder. So, why does seagoing trade make Italy the center of internal uh, commerce? Well, one of the things that was, one of the reasons that banking was fairly slow to grow in Europe uh, was because, if you think about it today, most banks make their money off of interest rates. And that was forbidden Mm. by the Catholic Church. And so, bankers had to come up with other means and ways of actually making money on banking. And one of the main ways that they did it was, um, well, there were two main ways they did it. One was uh, through conversion rates. So, for instance, if you were in France and you had French currency, just like today, well, not today because they're both in the EU, but at that time France had a different currency than Italy. So you would go from France to Italy and you need Italian money. You would need to convert that money into Italian money. And so the bankers uh, could charge a fee, not interest, in order to do that transaction. But the other way that they made money was basically by investing in trade. And so, for instance, the banks would put up the collateral um, mm. for, say, you wanted to buy some ships and you needed to, you know, trade spices uh, with um, some of the place, then you could uh, invest by buying the ships, uh, providing that, and then you would get um, the, uh, the, you'd get a portion of the proceeds. So, again, it wasn't charging interest, but it made them very, very wealthy. And so that one of the reasons that Italy itself became a real center for trade was because there's so much coastline that's water, mm. and they sort of serve as a transition space between mainland Europe, like England, France, Germany, and um, then places uh, farther east that had things like jewels and spices and um, all those other commodities. So that's why Italy itself became a real center of banking at this time period. That's interesting. So, Corsi, we have to meet him. Oh, God. He was mercenary. So how did he get away with taking what he wanted and killed when he didn't? Well, he um, 
because he became so powerful, he was involved mm. with the politics of Florence, yeah. which was then probably one of the richest cities in Europe. And so just like now, money is a very important element of power. And so mm -hmm. if he became part of the political class in Florence, he would be able to cover up his misdeeds. And he, he was, Rossi is a very unscrupulous businessman. And so he mm -hmm. uses any method he can to, um, to make his money, and, and you see that in, in one example in the book about how he's um, bankrupting one of his competitors. And mm -hmm. so he uses these, these nefarious means to, to make his money um, as well as, as the legitimate means and because he has, has great uh, ambitions. And he basically he models him at actually on the, the Medici and he, he pre predates them by about 30 years but you know we kind of show how the Medici's might have risen in power in Florence mm -hmm. if they they used the same methods as Carosi did that's scary so then we have another character that you know there's a question mark about him at times Tell us about Sir Randolph Armstrong and why is he so loyal to Corsi? I mean, they're afraid of him. Yeah. So, um, interestingly enough, just as we model Carosi on one of the famous members of the Medici family, we modeled mm -hmm. Armstrong on another actual historical person at that time period uh, mm -hmm. who was an English knight who came to Italy as a mercenary to make his fortune. So that was um, that was actually based on a real person as well, so John Hawkwood. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's just interesting that we were able to incorporate so much actual um, historical um, uh, influence into the novel. And just like Sir John Hawkwood, Armstrong was ready to sell his services basically to the highest bidder. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things that's interesting that you have to remember in this time period is you know, I keep saying Italy, but of course Italy itself uh, was a peninsula at the time, but it wasn't a country in the way that it is today. It was divided up into all these powerful city-states, and in each city-state there was a different form of government in Venice, in Florence, in Siena, and there was a climb to power in each of these city-states, and then each of the city-states against the other city-states. So there was a lot of in, 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 sort of political... Um, intrigue and maneuvering at this time, and people like Armstrong, who were very good mercenaries, who were good leaders of men, and wielded the sword, and were able to bring that sword to bear on um, individual political situations, were very, very highly sought after. And the historical figure that I mentioned, Sir John Hawkwood, actually was one of the wealthiest people in Italy at the time period, and became very, very highly respected um, in that area. So Armstrong teams up with Croce. Uh, they're both uh, a, a bit ruthless, and they kind of recognize that quality in each other and realize that they would make a very, very potent team. Well, I just got a, a thing on Facebook that Christina Guerra is listening to the show right now for the whole bunch of people that were on with me yesterday for something else. So, see, you're getting there. <laughs> this is great. It's right. nice to yeah. see everybody listening. So this, this was really interesting, too. 
tell us about the Knights Templar and how we're tied to the banking system. And then we'll get to my favorite character in the book beside Rilla and Fox Luciana. I love her. Yeah, so so because in our book, Rossi was um, associated with the Knights Templar when he was young, he learned their methods. And so mm-hmm. he capitalized on that literally and and started building his banking business with the seed money he got from them. And that's how he became so powerful in Florence. And he learned from them about how to invest and make income from from other people's work and also how to make money exchanging um, currency between Genoa mm. and Venice and Vienna and Florence so that um, he could build his vast wealth that way. So tell us about Luciana and her father and her son and Tomasano. Yeah, so we really wanted to... Um, you know, I think we find in a lot of um, mm. books that we read, there's these really powerful uh, men characters, and they're always sort of mm. in the prime of life. We really wanted to uh, feature Luciana as a heroine because mm. she is an older woman, and um, she's, you know, you'll you'll see in the book that she's had quite a tough life, um, and she kind of breaks out of that and really becomes a true heroine with the help of Fox and Willa. So that was a really interesting mm-hmm. character arc for us uh, to do, how she breaks away um, from her horrible husband and she ends up, um, you know, sort of solving all of her problems through her wit and through her own strength. And so that was a really neat character arc for us to show. I think Luciana is one of my favorite characters um, in in the book. Yeah, and we she is, um, she, she is actually the daughter of Ramberte, who is in the prologue, and mm-hmm. um, he became a Knight Templar after he had his daughter, and so um, she inherited the money that he did not donate to the Templars when he joined the organization, and um, and so Carosi ended up marrying her, and um, she became, you know, she she was uh, kind of tricked into it as you'll see mm-hmm. in the book. And um, she she realizes her mistake only later in life once she has her son, Tommaso, that she can't um, leave Karosi, um because she's afraid for her son. But then um, circumstances uh, change quickly um, because of the Black Death. And so... Um, so our book takes place in 1351, which is only a few years after the the Black Death has wiped out a third to a half the population of Europe, and so it was quite a time of upheaval, and it and it really touched every single person's life at that time in very profound ways, and so you'll see in the book how it really was the catalyst for getting this the story started. Well, if everybody really reads this, the afterword told me a lot when I read the end and in your research and everything that you did. So that's when I learned more. That's when I was able to change the questions and make them more real, more realistic. So there's a black death, but is that what was the great mortality? How is so, that linked um, to this? 
Yeah, so nowadays we call uh, the great pandemic of the middle of the 14th century the Black Death. Yeah. But that's not actually what they called it in their own time period. They referred to it as the great mortality, which is why mm-hmm. you see it in the book. Um, that's that's what I... Yeah, they also called it the pestilence. Yeah, but, yep. yeah, exactly. And so, the, you know, I think it's, it's interesting for our readers because even though we started the first book well before the COVID-19 pandemic, it gave us mm. um, insight into what it was like to live through a worldwide pandemic. And, of course, the Black Death came to Europe through the Italian continent, and the, the Italian, um, the, uh, sorry, not the continent, the peninsula, but Italy was one of the worst ravaged areas by the Black Death. And um, so we really see that in our book, um, in what Boyd was saying, the fact that all of the characters are touched by the Black Death because literally every single character in the book mm. has lost people they cared about due to the Black Death. And it really changed the entire course of European history um, in many ways, not just psychologically because of that, but a lot of the um, economic change. So, for instance, one of the cities that is featured in the book is Siena. And Siena mm-hmm. was an incredibly powerful, wealthy town at the time period, but the Black Death came and really ravaged Siena, and it basically never recovered. It lost uh, a lot of its power mm-hmm. and prestige at that time, and if you go to Siena today, it almost looks like it was frozen in time in 1348 because the buildings are the same, uh, because it didn't, it didn't ever really experience another surge of growth. And, in fact, mm. the population of Siena uh, did not recover its pre-Black Death population until, I think, the 19th century. So you can see how, um, how impactful that would be. And it lost a lot of its economic prestige, which is exactly why places like Florence then became so incredibly powerful. And Croce takes advantage of that in our book as well. Well, there's one thing that I read, I didn't read, but basically they were looking for the lost treasure of the Knights Templar, right? So yeah. how, how did, and who is Giovanni and what role does he play? But the different, you created different places to search for the treasure. How did you decide and how did you create the clues so that maybe they got it, maybe they wouldn't get it? That was really interesting. Yeah, well, Giovanni is the kind of a mysterious character yeah. at the beginning of the story, and you only find out later what his true role is, and so we won't give that away. But um, I crossed that one out. The, <laughs> yeah, and uh, so the the, um, the the search for the Templar treasure starts when um, Luciana finds a, a note that um, mm-hmm. was intended for the, the the boy that she was in love with when she was a teenager who um, died in, in uh, tragic circumstances and, um, and her father intended for them to wed. Um, but, but before they mm-hmm. could marry, um, he died. And he, she had a letter from her father with, with um, riddles in it. And she didn't understand it, but she did know mm-hmm. that he intended for her to find the Templar treasure with the intent of uh, hopefully starting the Templar order again. But um, after the Black Death, she learns of a 
second letter that was sent to her teenage um, love, Mateo. And she realizes that it was the second part of the riddle that she needed to find the treasure. And so now she has both uh, clues that she needs to find the treasure. And this is when the, the race to find the Templar treasure starts. And what, one of the interesting things about the way that Boyd and I work is that, you know, I, I provide a lot of the background, um, mm-hmm. and Boyd does really the writing for the book. And, um, but in, in this book, I did get to write a little something. I wrote the clues. That was one of my jobs. And it was such fun to come up with these riddles. And what Boyd and I discussed was the fact that um, as usual, we were making it very complicated on ourselves that um, in the book, um, as you'll see, um, uh, Luciana was supposed to get this letter and start solving the clues very soon after her father wrote it. Um, but for various reasons, all this time passes, and now they're trying to set, uh, solve these clues decades later. Well, of course, the clues were based on physical monuments and artwork mm. and, and city plans, and things change over time. So we not only had to write clues um, about these places, but we had to then invent how those, um, see how those places changed over time, which adds to the complexity of them trying to solve these clues. And so one of the fun things is that Boyd and I right now um, are working on a, um, a sort of treasure hunt for our readers uh, that's going to launch through our publisher, um, Head of Sue, soon. Uh, so check out our uh, social media for uh, information about how to participate. Yeah, you'll be able to do your own scavenger hunt to find a, a treasure. And, and all of the riddles that we have in that are related to our books. And so it's, if you go onto my Twitter page, uh, Boyd Morrison, at Boyd Morrison, you'll mm-hmm. find a way to, to sign up for that and um, – and participate in that. And I think it'll be a fun way for our readers to go on the same kind of quest that our, our uh, characters in our book do. That would really be a challenge for some people. That's interesting. Now, there's another group. Uh, who were the hospitalers, and what is their importance in the novel? Because they play a part, too. Yeah, you find out later in the novel that the Knights Hospitaller are, have a, an interest in this as well. And yeah. So the Nightbot Fiddler were actually um, kind of rivals of the Knights Templar, and they they did have different um, missions when for pilgrims. So the Knights Templar were more about protecting them during their travels, um, and the Nightbot Fiddler, as as you might know in the, in the na- names, they they ran hospitals, so they were caring for the health of the pilgrims because it was a very um, uh, difficult time for them to travel and they had many, many health problems. So they needed mm. the Knights Hospitaller to provide them hospitals to to recover from the arduous travel that they had. And so in the same way, the Knights Hospitaller became very powerful because they would get many, many donations from the people they treated and um, you might know them better now as the Knights of Malta, 
um, because mm-hmm. they, that's where they ended up now with their headquarters. But um, in the time of our book, they were known as the Knights of Rhodes because that's where their headquarters was based. And when the Knights Templar were disbanded by the Pope in 1314, all of the remaining mm-hmm. riches of the Templar were handed over to the Knights Hospitaller. And that's why the Hospitallers became... Uh, even more uh, rich and powerful at that time. Which leads me to my next question. Okay, tell us about the challenges you faced. What was the fact that whatever they found in 1914-51 in various cities would be different from the clues indicated in 1314? So when you realized that your struggles to determine what had changed in 40 years and was a parallel fit that Willa and Fox would encounter, why did they drive this as a key point or factor of the book? So how does that drive them to find out the clues and read them? Because I found that really interesting. Well, as Beth mentioned, there the there were many changes in the art and architecture in that the intervening 40 years. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things we don't think about in modern times is that they were constantly doing construction and um, building new, um, you know, churches and public buildings. So, for example, in Siena, there is... Um, the famous Palazzo Publico um, in the central square of the city. And there is a a tower there that um, they had just completed right before the Black Death called the Torre del Mangio. It it is still there, and it's 367 feet tall. And at the time, it was the tallest building on the Italian peninsula. And um, so it it didn't exist at the beginning of the book in 1312 or 1314. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, when Rimberti was writing the clues, that building wasn't there. And so when, when Fox and Will and Luciana are trying to solve the, the clues, there's an entire new building in mm-hmm. the place where they have to solve the riddle. And so that, that kind of thing continues to happen because, for example, in Florence, the the famed Duomo, the central cathedral that that is so well known, was only half built at the time of our book. The dome that everybody knows was not actually in the cathedral yet. It took another mm-hmm. seventy years to build that, and so um, it 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 kind of shows that that in this time period there was still great change and upheaval and progress. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't just a static kind of, of life at that time. That people had ambitions and they, had, they wanted to build new things just like their predecessors. And so, um, you know, time doesn't stand still. And so we, we kind of wanted to show that in each place that they went, that they're that there was progress even between even in the the fifty years uh, at the beginning of the fourteenth century. Well, how did you decide the different places that they visited? For example, we just talked about Siena, but when you visited uh, Piazza del Campo and clicked into toward the Mangia, why did you include this as another stop? And then Florence was next, and Luciano seemed to like that. <laughs> yeah, so the um the first book in the 
series, which we call The Tales of Lawless Land, the first book in the series actually ends in northern Italy. So we wanted to pick mm-hmm. up uh, from where that book ended. So they were already in Italy. So we decided to set this book in Italy. And um, it, it was funny you ask about Siena in particular because the reason we wanted to include Siena was basically because I had never been there. And mm-hmm. I'm a medievalist, and it was just shameful that one of the most important cities uh, mm. in medieval and renaissance Italy I had never been to. So we determined very early on that we wanted to uh, feature Siena in one of the scenes. But as I mentioned before, it was actually perfect because Siena itself basically died when the Black Death got there. And so the city that you walk through today is much more like the mid-14th century than any other city uh, where the book is set. And so you really, really get a sense of what it was like. And I think a lot of people who go to Siena today are very mm-hmm. surprised at how small the city is because it's still enclosed by the same medieval city walls that would have been there in the 14th century. The streets are just um, very narrow because they're you know, built for horse traffic, not necessarily for uh, cars and whatnot. So I think people are surprised when they go to Siena, but it's a very good example of what life in a 14th century city would have looked like. Um, So Siena, we knew, was going to be one of the cities, but we also um, decided that the main city that Carosi would live in is Florence because he's taking advantage of building this banking Mm -hmm. empire, which is exactly what was happening in mid-14th century Florence. And then uh, we go on to Venice because who's going to write a book about the Middle Ages and not include Venice? And um, the the way that that city is constructed is also very much on its original medieval model. And for those of you who have been to Venice, you know that there's no car traffic at all because the city streets are still from the Middle Ages, and they're very, very narrow. And then, of course, the city is crisscrossed by hundreds and hundreds of canals. And um, that city has a very medieval, at least the center of Venice, has a very medieval feel as well. And, of course, we want to take advantage of all the romance and the waterways and all that that provides some of the most thrilling scenes uh, for the book. I still want pictures in the next one. Seriously. I said, I actually looked up all the places to get pictures so that I would be able to picture it in my mind and go, you've got to put pictures in the next one. But before I forget, on Friday, New York Times author John Lansing will be here with 25 to Life. And next week, I am, like, so excited. Um, Spy Coast, Tess Gerenson takes the spotlight on Wednesday. Eleanor Cohn's on the 21st. I'm going to do a film about hospice and death and last rites on the 28th with Minister Sam Oliver. And that's just September. October's going to even be better. You just never know what I'm going to do, but I'm so excited. And to end the month with you, you and Tess Garrison, what more can I ask for? So this part was really quite good. At each stop, how did they try to avoid coursing? Now, my favorite part was the disguises. How did you decide that, and how come And they recognized danger, so they were able to sort of get away or maybe not? Yeah, they, they once once Karosi finds out the, the, what they're after, yeah, um, which is the Templar treasure. He he gets the same clue, and so now mm. it's a race between them to to solve the riddles first, and each of them gets gets the upper hand at different times, 
Um, so they're they're constantly trying to outmatch and outwit each other about how they solve the clues and and of course Kurosi and his and Armstrong with his mercenary band are much more powerful foes. Mm. So so Fox, Will and Luciana can't fight them directly. They have to be much more clever about how they evade um them, especially when they go to Florence, which is Kurosi's mm-hmm. home turf. And so um, I'm a big fan of the Mission Impossible movies, and uh, I love all the heists that they do and disguises. And so I wanted to do the same kind of thing with our story. And so we came up with a very fun way for them to sneak into Florence by disguising themselves and making themselves look different. And we actually um, discovered some medieval ways that they could do that with actual items that they would have in that time period and um, and look different with different clothes and doing their hair and, um, and um, you know, acting differently. And so um, it was a lot of fun to do that kind of um, clever planning. You know, the, the stuff they come up with in a day, it would take us a month to figure out, but it was it was still fun to do. Well, we have Giovanni. So when he realizes that his father, the King of France, and the Pope want to overthrow the Knights Templar, what do they do? So, so we're keeping Giovanni's identity a secret because that's some, that's some fun twist in the book. But um, uh, Ramberti um, and Carosi um, have a history together that you find out in a flashback in the story, mm-hmm. and um, the. The, the Knights Templar were um, big um, lenders to the, the church, uh, the Catholic Church, as well as Carosi. And so he kind of learned that, too, that um, the, the Catholic Church needs a lot of money to build palaces and churches, and so they would borrow money as well. Um, and so uh, you find out why... Uh, Rossi is actually linked to Ramberti um, through another flashback and, and why they had such a rivalry. And you also find out that the Templar treasure holds something else that Rossi needs very badly because mm-hmm. um, we, uh, that's another secret um, about his identity that we're not going to reveal right now. Um, nope. That um, he, uh, there, there, he does want the treasure for its monetary value, but there's something in the treasure itself that he needs that is a, a, a very much a threat to him. And if they, and if Luciana finds it first, then um, it will basically destroy him and his business. And so he, he needs to find the Templar treasure before they do. So what's going to happen if they, if they find it? And everybody's taking a risk, so Let's say they find it or don't find it. Is it worth the risk to go after it? Um, it's, so that was one thing we had to come up with, is why Fox and Willa are going along on this quest. Yeah. So for Luciana and Carosi, um, if, if either of them finds it first, it will destroy the other person. And so that's why they are very much, um, uh, on, you know, it's a life and death quest for them. But uh, for, our, for our main characters in the series, Fox and Willa, 
they have to um, have a reason as well. And so we, we uh, had to really think about that, about why they would go on this quest. And they, one of the reasons, um, and, and there are a number of reasons, but one of them is that Luciana um, is kind of a way for both of them to redeem themselves um, with losses that they've had earlier in their lives. So Fox lost his mother at a very young age, and Luciana reminds him very much of his mother. And so if he can help save Luciana, um, it's a way for him to to save a woman that is a mother figure to him that's in a way that he couldn't save his own mother. And then for Willa, she had a very similar um, event happen where she lost the um, lady that she served um, mm-hmm. throughout her life, and that was her best friend, and she, who was then killed later. And um, Luciana reminds her very much of that woman, and so she sees a way to save somebody um, that she couldn't save before. And so they both go on this quest because they, they feel a, um, a, a duty to help this uh, woman that they've basically just met but they, they realize that they can get some measure of justice um, that they couldn't get in their own lives. And we really wanted the characters to have a um, personal reason to um, be involved with this story because they're not just sort of, you know, do-gooders who are going to wander around and get involved in everything. Um, and so this was one of the things that Boyd and I discussed very early on in the process, how are we going to get Fox and Willa wrapped up in this story. And I remember I was walking my dogs and Boyd was walking his dog and he was talking to me about it. And he said, Beth, I've come up with the reason that, that, that they're going to get involved. And, and I said, Oh great. What is it? And he, and he said, Luciana is Fox's mother. And I was like, really, we're going to, we're going to bring back Fox's, Fox's mother. And, I was really alarmed because I thought this is going in a really weird direction. And finally we realized that we were talking at cross purposes and that what Boyd meant was that Luciana was a substitute. That, that represents his mother. Yeah, substitute. And that's yeah, not his mother. No, we're, we're actually going to make it that she <laughs> happened to be Fox's mother and that, that would have just been such a weird coincidence. <laughs> And it would have actually changed the whole story of the first book. So uh-huh. that was not what I was intending at all. But it was very funny because Boyd and I almost have a telepathy. We've known each other for so long that we don't often have misunderstandings like that. And we got a huge laugh out of that one. That That is great because basically um, I'm doing something in um, December. A lot of authors, and I'm really glad, are featuring uh, characters that are older. And they're not making them senile and stupid. They're making them intelligent and bright. And I'm doing one in December for age discrimination because it bothers me. That, you know, Mm -hmm. you walk into a store and they look at you and all of a sudden they think you don't understand. Well, guess what? We all do. So that really (laughs) brought the novel even more realistic to me that you took an older woman that's not, you know, that's smart and can, can handle it. So how did you create the final explosive scenes? We're not going to tell anybody whether the treasure was found or not, but how did you create the final scenes? Well, we, we, um, uh, we don't want to give away where it takes place no. because that's obviously what they're trying to find in the story. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, you do know from the riddles that it's an island somewhere in the Mediterranean. And so we knew that there was going to be a shift that would need to take them somewhere, which is one of the reasons we, we decided on Venice, because that was basically the shipping capital of Europe at the time. And so, in fact, they, they made many of the ships for Europe in the big shipyards they had there. And so we knew that there was going to be a, an element uh, on the water, and we and so I, this was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to have a big ship battle um, because we didn't have anything like that in the first book. And so I, we, we thought a lot about how that would have to happen. Um, and they, they find, uh, I, I will say that um, it involves gunpowder, which was very new to Europe at the time. Um, it was mm -hmm. brought over from China. Um, that's where they invented it. And so it came through um, the, the Middle East, and um, they were just starting to use it in cannons uh, in, in battles in Europe at that time, but gunpowder was very rare. And so they, they find a cache of it um, uh, at, towards the end of the book, and that will, that will uh, be very key to the, the story of the battle. Um, that, that is featured towards the end of the book. Yeah, Boyd really likes to make make our scenes as much as exciting as modern scenes. Mm -hmm. So, um, as you said, it's got to be explosive somehow. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of known for that for all of my books. There's always some kind of explosion in the story. <laughs> and so uh -huh. I, I, uh, I, I came up with a way that we could make that happen. That's actually very realistic for the time period. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of people that would like to blow up people, too, and create scenes like that. But I, I won't even tell you why. So Luciana, not Luciana, Willa and Fox, are they ever going to decide what to do next about themselves? So that's uh, one of the things that we wanted to explore in this story. So in the first book, they meet each other mm -hmm. and um, decide to um, join forces um, but they're still unmarried. And you find yeah, out early on in the book that there is a big barrier to them getting married, which is that Fox is an excommunicated knight. And Beth, why don't you talk about what excommunication mm -hmm. meant for that time in, in Europe? Yeah, so that was really one of the central plot points of the first book and will be an ongoing concern um, through the series because he has not gotten unexcommunicated. But excommunication was a really, really big deal uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, as, as many of your um, uh, listeners may already know, uh, the church, the Catholic church, was absolutely mm. central to virtually every aspect of life in the Middle Ages. Mm. So excommunication was really about the worst thing you could do to someone besides kill them. And in many ways, it was worse because what excommunication meant was that you were no longer um, a, a welcome member of the Catholic Church. It meant um, many things on this earth. It meant socially you were an outcast. People could not associate with you. They were not allowed to help you in any way. Mm. They were not allowed to speak with you. You were not allowed to go into a church. You were not allowed to partake in any kind of community event. And 
probably worse for all these people who are very religious. After death, you go to hell, and there is no redeeming your soul. And so it had implications both in this world and the next. So like I said, it was almost a fate worse than death, because if you were a good Christian, at least when you died, you went to heaven. So it had all sorts of implications. It really was a terrible um, way to live life in the Middle Ages. And so uh, Fox has to go around with this burden. And um, because he's excommunicated, as I said, you cannot partake in any of the rites of the Catholic Church, including marriage. Yeah. So, so when he meets up with Willa, who knows that he's excommunicated, they have to make a decision about how they're going to remain together. And if they get married, it has to be without the knowledge of the church because they, mm. they, they would never uh, let them get married in the church. But on the other hand, if they uh, get married um, without the church, then they have to decide, is it really a marriage that is going, you know, going to mean something? And so this is a, a, a constant um, source of tension between them. And so you can you see in the book how that plays out and what decisions they make. Because they are so good together, they realize that they're, they're a great partnership and that they love each other, but there is this huge weight um, hanging mm-hmm. over them about what to do um, with their lives going forward. Because as Beth said, they, they technically they can't um, participate in any aspect of society if, if it is known that he is excommunicated. And so the fact that they're in Italy means that they can not reveal the truth and still mm. participate in social life. Um, but um, as we find out in the story, they're, they're, they get exposed for who they really are, and that causes many, many complications. And the, and the thing is that it was a real risk to Willa because mm. she knew that he was excommunicated, so she was putting her own soul at mm-hmm. risk um, because she would be excommunicated if anyone found out that she was traveling with him or having any sort of association willingly with him at all. So it, it's a real source of tension in their relationship. Yeah, and we actually wrote a, a flashback in the story where they see the consequences of being excommunicated and I how that. brutal it is for somebody's lifestyle. And so they get a taste of that, and what would be in store for them is if they were ever actually discovered for who they are. I realize also it probably created a problem if anybody knew where they were staying if they weren't married, too. They probably would have had a problem wherever they had to go. So Yeah, it, it, for, that's the problem is that it's a problem for them traveling around if they're unmarried because yeah. that's really not the way man and woman could be seen together. But on the other hand, if they're married, then that's a... a uh, a problem if the church or anybody important finds out that they've married while he was excommunicated because that's an offense against the church and they could be burned as heretics uh, for that offense. And so they were, their lives were in mortal danger as well. And that's another reason they go on this quest is because mm. somebody finds out who they really are and if they're exposed, um, they, will, they could be burned at the state by the church, just like um, the head of the Templars were at the beginning of the book. 
It just seems so unfair. It's almost like, you know, who who you know or how high you're up and whatever. And they wanted the Templars destroyed anyway. They wanted them disbanded. They didn't care. So, right. And and at the, in the Lawless Land, the first book in the series, you find out that that um, that Gerard Fox was unjustly excommunicated. It was yeah. not. It was it was the whole setup, and so he is. Um, he he believes rightly that that he should not have been excommunicated, but he needs evidence to show the church that it was uh, fully um, coordinated for him to be excommunicated and for his lands to be taken and his title and reputation to be taken. And so there's also tension between Fox and Willa about whether that could ever change. And and at the beginning of the story, Fox is somewhat hopeless about ever uh, being absolved of his excommunication. And that's, that's a problem for Willa because she believes that someday it will happen. And so that's another source of tension between them as the story goes on. So what's next for you guys, and who's coming back? Well, Fox and Willa uh, will continue their adventures um, in book three. And um, Beth and I, as as she mentioned earlier, travel to the places that we uh, feature in our book because we want to get – we get ideas for the storylines, but we also get a lot of details about the locations that we feature in our stories. As you mentioned in the afterword, Beth explains mm-hmm. a lot of that um, to our readers so that they can see what's real and, and what's not in our book. And so in April, we went to Croatia to mm. research the location for the next story. And there, um, neither of us had really been to any part of Croatia. And we discovered before we went, that there are many, many well-preserved medieval cities along the Dalmatian coast in Croatia, like Dubrovnik and Split and Korchula. And again, like Siena, when you go, you really get a sense of what life in the mid-14th century might have been like because the, the city and streets and buildings are so well-preserved. And um, so it was just a great um, setting for our book because uh, we could visit all these medieval towns. And, in fact, it was um, used, uh, Dubrovnik and Split were used for the filming of Game of Thrones, which has a very medieval feel to it because those cities are so well-preserved. So where can everybody get all, get all of your books, and when do you predict this next five-star review is coming out? I have to wait till Thursday to do that. Sorry, people. Yeah, so as you mentioned, Thursday is the official launch date of the book, but you can pre-order it, uh, so it'll mm-hmm. be there at, you know, midnight on, on that day. And um, I'll give it over to Boyd to give more details. Yeah, but the, to remind you, the book is named The Last True Templar. That comes out this Thursday, September 14th, both in the U.S. and the U.K. And um, we're, we're working hard on the next book now. We don't have a release date yet, but um, hopefully it won't be uh, too long after this book. Uh, but uh, the, be assured that Fox and Willa's adventures will continue. 
And there will be exciting scenes and explosions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have it on the air. I have it, the last two templates. I have comments that people are making that are very positive. And I just posted my review of your book on Facebook. Great. Facebook. And oh, I will I post my, my yeah, 10 stars on Thursday. I have it in my schedule because otherwise I'm, it's getting crazy. But thank you so much. This really made my day. It brightened it. It's beautiful outside. I don't know how it is where you are, but we had bad storms last night, but there's nothing today, thank God. No, it's a nice here, too. We're in Los Angeles, and it's pretty nice. Oh, that is, that is nice. That is really nice. And over here, it's debatable. New York, New York weather is really changeable. But we had yeah. thunderstorms last night, but tonight it's really pretty. But thank you so much, very, very much. I will post – my review is posted on Just Reviews. I will email it to you. And I yeah, that like what I wrote. And I, oh, I never well, thank you so much, anything. Fran. We really appreciate talking to you, and we we um, are so happy you love the book. Yeah, it's great to be I, a guest. Thank you so much for inviting us. I'm, I'm so glad you came, and I really, really, really love the book. And anybody that doesn't read the beginning of the first one and the second one, you're really cheating yourself. So, everybody, it's beautiful outside. Have a great day. Stay safe, and bye. Bye. bye.